I believe this is my first uh, week back preaching in three weeks, uh, so it is good to be back with you. We are going to continue our summer series on the letter to the Galatians. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Galatians. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, there are Bibles in the pew racks. Uh, and uh, if you are unfamiliar with the Bible and its flow and the books of the Bible, um, in the worship guide, uh, the page number for which this passage is printed is included for you. So quick review, uh, because even if you haven't been here, for those of us who have been around, um, it's easy to forget from week to week, right? Right? Or is it just me? All right. I trust that it's all of us and you're not just mocking me. But here's some background info for what's going on in this letter. So Galatia, uh, this place that is uh, talked about in the letter, the letter is obviously named after it, was a Roman province in Asia Minor. Now, that might not mean anything to you. Think modern-day Turkey. Now, I guess that might mean nothing to you if your geography is as good as mine, but at least helps some for some of you. Uh, Galatia is where modern-day Turkey is located. And there's a driving question throughout this letter. And the question is this, on what basis are Gentiles, in other words, non-Jewish people, on what basis are non-Jewish people included in the family of God? On what basis are they included in the church? And the reason that this was a relevant question was because Christianity uh, began as a Jewish movement made up predominantly of Jewish people. And as Christianity began to spread, more and more people began to profess faith in Jesus, begin to follow him and come into the church. And eventually, uh, these questions arose. On what basis are these non-Jewish people included? Um, should we force them to follow Jewish customs like we do? So there was a group um, that is referred to as the Judaizers. I know it's a, it's a funny name. But this group of teachers that were infiltrating the church and saying this, that Jesus is important to the equation, he's important to the formula, you have to believe in him, but you must also adopt Jewish cultural customs. In other words, you pretty much basically have to become Jewish as well to truly, fully be Christian. Paul writes this letter uh, probably at the end of his first missionary journey. So he went on three missionary journeys. He writes this near the end of the first. And Paul's point is this. Jesus plus nothing else equals favor with God, equals being right with God. So the formula is not Jesus plus something else. It's Jesus alone, Jesus plus nothing else. And so the purpose of this letter really is for the apostle Paul to call these young uh, followers of Jesus, these young Christians out of danger back to the truth of the gospel of grace. That brings us to uh, verses 10 through 14 of chapter 3 this morning. So let me go ahead and read those and we'll get into it. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous 
shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let me take a moment and pray for us, and then we'll jump in together. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would bring the word of Jesus to life in our hearts and our minds this morning. We pray that you would pursue us wherever we find ourselves, believing, disbelieving, unsure of what we believe. None of us is here by chance or coincidence. You have brought us to this place for your purposes this morning. And so we pray that you would apply truth, that you would apply uh, hope, that you would apply uh, the freedom of the gospel to us in the ways that we need to hear it and receive it this morning. We trust that you're able to do this um, to Jesus' glory and for our good. Amen. A blessing or a curse? A blessing or a curse? We sometimes ask this question, don't we? And often the answer is both and. Something can be both a blessing and a curse. Take social media, for example, something relevant to all of us, or at least most of us. Social media can be a blessing, can it? It can be a blessing because it enables us to maybe stay in touch with those that we would not be able to stay in touch with otherwise. But social media can also be a curse, can it? It can be a curse in that it might suck up too much of our time and interfere with our ability to cultivate true personal relationships of death. In Galatians 3, 10 through 14, these verses that I just read for us a couple moments ago, the Apostle Paul uses blessing and curse language. And the blessing and curse language corresponds with two kinds of life the life of law, and the life of faith. One leads to curse, and the other leads to blessing. So let's take a look at these two kinds of life, beginning with the life of law. Look right off the bat um, in the beginning of verse 10. Paul says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So immediately, Paul makes it clear that the life of law, whatever that might be, we're going to unpack that in a moment, the, the life of law leads to curse. That's its ultimate destination. So we know that up front. We know going into this conversation, all right, that the, the, law, uh, the life of law leads to curse and the life of faith leads to blessing. That's where Paul's going. It's the direction he's going. But we need to unpack this to better understand it. What does Paul mean by works of the law? We have to be clear on that, right? Because he says specifically that those who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So the law of life or, or the, the life of law is a life in which we are relying on the works of the law. We actually asked this question uh, a few weeks ago when we came across this same phrase in chapter 2. And here's what we said. We said that the works of the law basically equals 
human effort to be justified by God. The works of the law represent human effort to be justified by God. In other words, it is seeking to obey God's law, seeking to live by God's law in order to get his love, his favor, and his acceptance. You see, to be justified in the Bible, in biblical terms, is to be declared in the right. This term that's used in the New Testament is actually borrowed from the court of law. Justification is meant to bring to mind a judge's verdict that someone is in the right. So in the context of Galatians, in the context of Paul's discussion, what Paul is talking about here is an approach to life in which a person seeks to be made right with God on the basis of obeying God's law. So let's offer up a definition of the life of law. A life of law, we could say, is a way of life in which you rely on your performance in order to justify yourself. I'll say that again. A life of law is a way of life in which you rely on your performance in order to justify yourself. Now, why does this kind of life lead to curse? In the second part of verse 10, Paul goes on to say, For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of law and do them. Paul's actually quoting from the Old Testament here, from uh, the book of Deuteronomy, so one of the early books of the Old Testament. And the quote comes from Deuteronomy 27, 26. And that verse says this, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. So why does the, law, the, the life of law lead to curse? Answer, because your performance is never good enough. Your performance is never sufficient. Your performance is never enough. It never measures up. It can never meet the standard. The demands of the law are too much. If you are to be made right with God by obeying his law, guess what? You have to obey all of the law. That's point, Paul's point here. And he's making the point on the basis of the Old Testament. So this isn't his invention. It comes from the flow and logic of the biblical story. In other words, you can't just do a decent job at this. You can't just say, well, I'm a, I'm a good person because for the most part, I follow God's instructions and his law. You have to do a perfect job. That's Paul's argumentation here. So this means that the law ultimately in the end condemns us. We all fall short of what God demands and are under its curse because we're unable to obey all that it commands. Now, I want to revisit a question that we also asked a few weeks ago. And the question is this, is this just Bible talk? Is this just God talk? Is this just religious talk? Is what I just described a problem that is exclusive to religion, ex exclusive to Christianity, maybe in particular? I want to suggest to you that the answer, I provided this answer a few weeks ago, is no. And the way that I said it a few weeks ago 
was like this, that Bible talk is real talk. Because the Bible is presented to us as the story of God. You know, sometimes we uh, really have this terrible approach to the Bible where we think that it's just simply a book of doctrine and instruction. And don't get me wrong, there is doctrine, which basically means teaching. There's teaching and instruction in this book, but that teaching, that doctrine, that instruction comes to us ultimately in the context of a story, God's story. And God's story is presented to us as the true story of the world. Now, this is going to be really important because we're going to keep coming back to this idea. Uh, what story are we ultimately living by? Are we living by God's story? Are we living by our own story, the story of self. But Bible talk is real talk. Now, let me talk about specifically uh, why I believe that is in light of the content of this passage. We might resist the idea of a standard. So what I'm, what I'm doing here is I'm just taking the possible objection that, well, okay, that's great, that that's Paul's logic, his argumentation uh, within the, the confines of the Bible, but this is exclusive to religion. It's exclusive to the Bible. And I'm saying that's not the case. So we might resist the idea of a standard, that we actually don't believe in anything such as God's law, and we believe that we are free to make our own rules. But none of us in practice actually believes that. Because at the end of the day, we actually have expectations of people, right? We have standards. That's why so many of us can um, call out a mass shooting as, a, in, in, um, as the example that took place yesterday. There's something instinctual in us that knows that that is wrong, and so we cry out against it. And we expect for other people to agree with this standard. So in practice, we all have standards that ultimately surpass just self, right? Because even the standards that we create for ourselves we inevitably expect others to meet them, to live up to them, and we judge others accordingly, and we often get our sense of reputation and value and worth based on that, right? On our ability to follow through with our standards and other people's inability to do so, so we think that we are better than them. We all have expectations or standards but none of us lives up to our own expectations and standards perfectly. So the logic of the world, so to speak, outside of the Bible is you either obey my standard or you are cursed. It's pretty much how it works. We are always comparing ourselves to others. We care, in other words, about being justified. And what I mean by that is that each and every one of us, deep down inside, wants to be right, we want to be accepted, we want to be validated. Why does this practically lead to curse? I want to talk about two reasons. The first is insecurity, and the second is pride. So let's start with insecurity. There's an article... Uh, that was written in the Harvard Business Review. And the title of this article is What to Do When Caught in a Lie. All right? What to do when caught in a lie. And early on in this article, there's a specific example that is given. And let me just read to you the example as it's presented in the article. 
An executive gave a presentation about the financial state of his company. As he explained the reasons behind the previous period's shortfalls and his forecast for the next, the people in the room seemed to grow uneasy and even troubled. And it goes on to say the reason for that is because they knew he was not being truthful. They knew he was not telling the full story. And so the person writing this article um, talks about how uh, she went to uh, this man uh, after the fact and pointed out uh, his lies and then proceeded to ask him about why he lied. But she has this really insightful comment where she says this, his desperate need to belong drove him to try to purchase acceptance. He wanted to be approved of. He wanted to be accepted by those in his company So he lied because of his desperate need to belong. He purchased acceptance. Bible talk is real talk. What the Bible talks about are the realities that are actually being lived out and known by us in our experience. And so one of the reasons that the life of law leads to curse is because it breeds insecurity. We can never have true self-confidence because how do we know if we've actually really ever arrived? How do we know if we're fully justified? How do we know if we really belong? Because once we belong to this group of people, we don't belong to this group of people, but we want to belong to that group of people too. It breeds anxiety. In other words, it comes down to this. We never can be sure that it is good enough. But the life of law also leads to pride. Yesterday, uh, an African-American woman in our neighborhood, I live in the neighborhood um, in which this building is located, um, shared a horrific story of going to a park in the neighborhood um, where she received um, terribly offensive racist comments by uh, an older white man. And she was grieved by this, um, like just crying out in this post. Um, uh, It actually, um, from what I know of her, um, it seems like she is a follower of Jesus. And so she was uh, very legitimately lamenting and grieving this. But as I think about this, what would lead, and and there was almost like no, um, nothing that happened that led to this. It was like he saw her and saw the color of her skin, and so he just... um, released on her horribly offensive comments. Why do people do such things? Now, of course, there are a lot of answers. But I think one of at least the important reasons is this idea of self-justification. It was a very dark and despicable way for this man to feel better about himself based on the color of his skin. And so he's living in this false story, he's living according to this lie in order that he can derive a sense of justification based on his culture, based on the color of his skin. Bible talk is real talk. What the Bible talks about are realities that are actually played out in real life. And let me bring this um, life of law section to a close by pointing out this interesting um, observation. A religious life is surprisingly similar to a secular life. It it can be. 
And, and actually, I, I should say this, I'm using the term religious in a derogatory negative way. We, we can use it positively to just um, say that there are various religions in the world, Christianity is one of them. But the way that I'm talking about religion right now is basically I'm equating it with this idea of a life of law, that we seek to gain God's favor and his approval, his acceptance by um, obeying the law, being good enough, living a moral life. But what's interesting to me is that in thinking about it this way, a religious life is surprisingly similar to a secular life. So by secular, I just simply mean the world outside of the world of religion, so to speak. Here's why they are surprisingly similar. They are both focused on self. They are both focused on self. In the religious world, it's my ability to obey God's law, and in the secular world, it's my ability to meet whatever the standard might be at the time, right? These are both forms or methods of self-justification. They're both methods of writing our own story. And we were not intended to write our own story. We were intended to live in a story much larger than our own. The life of faith that Paul talks about presents us with another way, a different way, a way that leads to blessing. So let's take a look at the life of faith. Verse 11, Paul continues, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So he reiterates the point that we've already talked about first. He says, all right, it's clear now from the argumentation, from the reasoning, that no one can be justified by God for obeying the law, living up to it, because it's impossible. We can't do it perfectly, and that's the uh, expectation. But then he concludes by saying, adding this, the righteous shall live by faith. And so he begins to talk now about the life of faith. This uh, uh, phrase here, the righteous shall live by faith, is yet another quotation from Paul from the Old Testament. It comes from the book of Habakkuk. It's a strange book that um, we probably don't read uh, daily in our devotions, right? Am I, is that a fair assumption? Uh, it could even be possible you've never heard of this book. Habakkuk is one of uh, the prophetic books of the Old Testament. Um, and the phrase that's quoted, it's quoted verbatim, the righteous shall live by faith faith. Now, here's, I mean, there are lots of reasons why this is really interesting, but let me just talk about one that stands out to me. What Paul is making clear here is that the Bible is consistent. The story the Bible tells is consistent from beginning to end. It's common, um, there are many times where I have heard something like this. In the Old Testament, people are accepted by God based on their ability to live according to the law. But then when we move into the New Testament, it's different. We are accepted by our faith or trust in Jesus Christ. And so really what that is saying is that there are two different ways that the Bible presents, one in the Old Testament and then maybe in the New Testament presents this, this better way. But that's actually not the case. From beginning to end, it has always been the case that a person finds favor, acceptance with God through faith and trust in what God promises. And so in the Old Testament, 
there was the promise of the Messiah, the promise of a Savior who would one day come to undo the curse of sin that exists in the world. And so for those who were in the Old Testament, they were saved, meaning they were found favor, acceptance with God, based on believing and placing their faith in that promise. And now for people in the New Testament, for folks like us, we too are saved, meaning we find our acceptance, our favor with God, based on the fact that we now know the identity of the Messiah and He has come. But in either uh, case, either direction, one's looking ahead and we're looking back. But it all centers on belief, faith, trust in God's promises and what God does for his people. We could define a life of faith like this. A life of faith is a way of life in which you rely on the performance of Jesus in order to be justified. The life, the life of faith is a way of life in which you rely on the performance of Jesus to be justified. And just for the sake of contrast, let me read what I um, shared with you as a definition of a life of law earlier. A life of law is a way of life in which you rely on your performance in order to justify yourself. Why does this kind of life, this way of life, lead to blessing? Let's consider it. And, and let's take the two categories of insecurity and pride. When we get clear on the gospel, in other words, the good news of who Jesus is and what he does for us, it, it, it removes insecurity. Now, it doesn't happen instantaneously because we are still fighting with our sinful self. There's this battle that, that's constantly going on. But when we, become, when we start to become clear on the gospel, it begins to gradually remove insecurities. Why is that? Remember the insecurity we talked about in the life of law. Is it ever good enough? Or I need to belong over here. Even if I have to lie, whatever it takes to be accepted, to be approved by this person, this group of people, I have to live up to my standard. I'll be racist if it makes me feel better about my... Well, I need to be justified, right? That's the curse of the, law, uh, the life of law. Well, in the life of faith, those insecurities are removed because we, the starting point is our acceptance and favor with God on the basis of what Jesus has done. And so it's this liberating, freeing news that we actually don't have to perform. It's, it's not up to us to perform to get God to accept us and love us. And so we can have a growing confidence. We, we don't have to use people. We don't have to manipulate people to make ourselves feel better because we already have a strong sense of self-worth in the fact that we are made in God's image and that Jesus actually gave his life for us so that we might experience his deep love and we might experience belonging in his family. This is the gospel, and it leads to blessing because we have a growing confidence. What about pride? Well, it removes pride. Again, gradually, as we do the battle with the um, indwelling sin that remains, but it removes pride gradually. Why is that? Because there's nothing for us to boast in. 
We, we can't point to our accomplishments or our performance um, as that which has made us acceptable to God. We simply have to give praise and gratefulness to Jesus for his performance on our behalf. And remember, Bible talk is real talk. And as we begin to um, grow in our understanding of the gospel, as we begin to experience it in all of its depth and all of its fullness, it changes us. And pride is obliterated over time. And again, we don't need to manipulate and use people. There's no place for things such as racism. There's no place for such things as using others as a stand or, or using ourselves as a standard for others and saying, well, you don't measure up into, to my standard or you're not good in the same way that I am good. There, there's no room for any of that because there's no room for boasting in our performance at all. It is all about the performance of Jesus on our behalf. And so Paul says, the righteous live by faith. The righteous live by faith. It might not jump out to you right away, but this is such a liberating statement. You see, righteousness is really what we are after. You see, by being declared by God as um, uh, um, what happens in justification is that we are declared as righteous by him. Like, that's the result of justification, and that's what each and every one of us wants deep down inside. We want to be told that we're in the right, that we're okay, that we're approved of, that we're loved. All of these things that we have been talking about, we want to be considered righteous. And Paul says, the righteous shall live by faith. And what this means is that the righteousness that we have as Christians is not a righteousness that we have attained. It's not a rightness that we have worked for, that we have performed for. It is a rightness or a righteousness that is given to us on the basis of Jesus' performance for us. And so it begins with the fact that we are righteous in Christ that we are loved by him, that we are accepted by him, that Jesus' record, Jesus' reputation covers our own. So the fact that we are righteous is the starting point. We don't now have to perform in order to become righteous, but because we are righteous in God's eyes on the basis of Jesus' performance and our faith in it, we are now free and liberated to live in a way in which we are not using life as a theater or a stage on which we have to perform to get people to praise us, love us, and approve us because we already have that in God's work in Jesus for us. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith, Paul says. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Again, it's coming back to this idea that if you're going to live by the law, the, the life of law, then you better really live by it. You better meet all of its demands. It leads to curse. Paul actually quotes from Leviticus 18.5 here. Another, that's a, a strange book of the Old Testament. Um, I dare you to start doing your daily devotions in Leviticus. Um, you will encounter some strange things, but Leviticus obviously serves a purpose in the biblical story. But Paul is quoting 
um, constantly in this section from the Old Testament. Again, it points out the consistency of the biblical story. And in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That last phrase, guess what? It's a quote from the Old Testament, again from the book of Deuteronomy. And this now, as we begin to wrap this up, brings us into the astonishing, remarkable, surprising truth of Christianity. How did Christ liberate us from having to live according to the law? How did he free us from this kind of life, this way of life, that that leads to curse? By becoming a curse for us. By becoming a curse for us. One commentator talking about this says, when a person was executed in the Old Testament, it was usually by stoning. Then the body was hung on a tree as a symbol of divine rejection. It was not that the man was cursed because he was hung, but rather he was hung as a sign of his curse. Paul draws the connection to Christ, whose execution was on a cross tree to show that he experienced the curse of divine rejection. There he freed, redeemed us from the curse of the law by taking it for us. The word for means on behalf of or in place of. Jesus became a curse for us. This is the God of Christianity, a God who recognizes the curse that we are under as a result of living for self, as a result of ignoring him and seeking to write our own story in the world. This God comes to us and he absorbs the, craw- the, the curse that is, all, that is supposed to be ours on himself. No other faith can claim this. No other philosophy, no other way of life that you might try to carve out in this world can come up with something as astonishing and surprising as this, that the God of Christianity and the person of Jesus Christ entered into this world and ultimately took upon himself your curse. God does what we could not do for ourselves. Our inability to meet the demands of the law, our ability to meet the demands of our own standards, he takes upon himself our failure and curse. And so really this comes down to the question that I posed earlier. Which story are you going to live by? What kind of life is going to be the life that characterizes your life? Will it be the story of self, the life of law that leads to curse? Or will it be the story of God, the life of faith, which leads to blessing? Choosing the story of self is what G.K. Chesterton, a Christian writer, refers to as the insanity of self-confidence. The insanity of self-confidence, that we actually believe that we are good enough, that we can completely measure up. The insanity of self-confidence. But look at, in life of faith, look at the, let's look at this blessing. Verse 14, what is the outcome? There's a so that uh, phrase in verse 14. 
So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Commentator says this, Jesus received the curse we earned that we might receive the blessing that he earned. He received the curse that we earned that we might receive the blessing that he earned. There is a life of blessing in God's story. There's no need for us to retreat to the curse of our own stories that breed anxiety and pride. We can rest in God's story. And we can experience the blessing. And this is what is is the beautiful outcome of this because what is in view here is not just personal blessing and benefit, although we obviously receive that uh, as we can rest in the freedom of the gospel, no longer have to... um, Uh, experience the insecurity or the pride that we talked about. But mission is in view here, living on behalf of others, because that is why God set Abraham, who's mentioned here, apart for himself. God's promise to Abraham was that I'm setting you apart, and from you, I am going to make a family of people in this world. And your purpose, the purpose of your family is to be a blessing to the world to be a display people of my goodness, my glory, my kindness, my beauty. And so by allowing our um, personal stories of curse to be crushed and obliterated as we uh, um, see them, as Jesus taking it upon himself on the cross, we are invited into a larger story in which we get to not just simply live for ourselves, but to live for others. And we can be a blessing to others In a world that is so divided, in a world that is so hostile, in a world that is so um, obsessed with seeking self-justification, we can present to the world not only in the proclamation of this beautiful message, but in the lives that we live that are marked by freedom and liberation and pursuit of the good of others, not simply ourselves, we can model for people the kind of life that we were made for, not the life of law but the life of faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your story, for your plan that includes all nations. We thank you that you intend to bless the world through your people. We pray that you would form us as your people. We pray that we would not just simply believe the gospel logically in our heads, but that we would actually embrace it in the depths of who we are and be changed by it. I pray that you would help us to find our belonging, our acceptance in what Jesus has done, and that we would live in light of that on behalf of the world. We trust that you're able to use ordinary people like us. We're, we trust that you're able to use an ordinary church like ours. Set us apart as your people and provide us with your spirit, as your word says that we have as as a result of faith in you. We pray that you would empower us by your spirit to be your people in the world. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.